Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. saying that they recite at the end of the Passover meal and at the end of Yom Kippur, and that is next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. This is a a saying of hope for them, expressing their desire to be completely restored in the land and experience the ultimate blessings of spiritual and physical redemption in the messianic kingdom. And despite their, you know, exile from the land and their adaptation to the cultures around them, they never forget their homeland. And that's why they have this saying. Some some of them will even leave a corner of their homes unfinished to demonstrate their exile in these foreign lands are temporary. Their homes here are temporary. Uh, they think about Jerusalem. They pray facing Jerusalem. Even in a joyous occasion, such as a wedding ceremony, they remember fallen Jerusalem. And they live out <clears throat> the words of Psalm 137, the song of the exiles, which says, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So the question that we want to grapple with today is if if the Jews were restored to the land after Babylon, like we've studied, then why were they exiled again? Why are they exiled all over the world again? And why was that theocratic kingdom they were expecting never restored? So that's what we're going to discuss as, as we continue working our way chronologically through the scriptures, just thinking biblically about the people in the land of Israel. And today we, we're going to come to the Gospels. Uh, in our chronology, we've made it through the latter prophets, and today uh, we come to the Gospels. And basically what we're going to do is a, a brief premillennial uh, exercise through the Gospels. But it, it sounds like a lot of you have found it helpful to do a bit of review each week, so let's, let's do that again. We have first established that uh, God promised the land to, to Abraham, the first Jew and his descendants forever. And this, this land was defined as the literal soil that Abraham walked on. God had him walk it north, south, east, and west and said, this is the land I'm giving to you forever. And God confirmed that with a promise. He confirmed that promise actually with a unilateral, unconditional covenant. And we remember that he chose this land because it would allow Israel to have a global influence. All the nations passed through this land, and so that's where he placed them. Uh, They would uh, be their witness to the world that way. And then we noted how they rarely dwell securely in the land because of two main reasons. There's some ancient spiritual animosity over the land and who's the promised child. And and then we also saw how the land always belongs to the Jews, but uh, disobedience brings exile from it. Because they entered into this <clears throat> Mosaic Covenant, which is a bilateral, conditional covenant. And uh, Israel understood, hey, in that, that keeping that covenant would bring guaranteed blessings, but breaking it would bring guaranteed cursings. So if they obey, they're going to be established. If they disobey, they're going to be scattered from the land, and they're going to experience many hardships and tribulations. So it's a cause and effect relationship that is overwhelmingly presented in the Old Testament. Basically, uh, most of it is about that relationship, that cause and effect relationship between God and the people and their uh, establishment or 
scattering from the land. And as we studied a couple of weeks ago with the conquest of the land under Joshua, they were, they were exiled for disobedience pretty quickly. Uh, the northern ten tribes, Israel, uh, were exiled to Assyria in 722 B.C. And the southern two tribes called Judah, though still Israel, as we think of it, were exiled to Babylon in 586 B.C. And those are the two major exile dates. And uh, it's, it's at that point, really, that the theocratic kingdom of Israel fell. And they became dominated from that point on by Gentile kingdoms. So we enter into what's been called the times of the Gentiles, where national Israel no longer has autonomous self-determination. They are at the, the whims and the hands of Gentile powers, like Babylon. And even though they're dispersed, God promises to preserve them and to restore them and reconcile them to himself. And that's the observable and patternable divine program that we've seen laid out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 30. And that's the message of the latter prophets. The latter prophets being not Elijah, Elisha, or Samuel, but but. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. Um, however, even though they return home, remember, they return home from Babylon after King Cyrus's decree in 539 B.C., they still remain under Gentile control from, from Persia, from Greece, and from Rome. And uh, even though the latter prophets predicted this initial restoration, these prophets also unanimously, repetitively, and painstakingly pointed forward to another greater tribulation with a capital T and another greater future restoration that never happened in that first return, which means there's another exile coming that's predicted before they even return to the land through the prophets. And so over and over and over again, until your mind is almost numb from like-minded prophecies in the Old Testaments, in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets declare that Israel is going to be restored. There's going to be an earthly, theocratic, geopolitical kingdom with Israel at the center, and uh, it's going to be restored to them when the Messiah comes. The Messiah is going to come with it, and it's just it's. I, if you can't sit down, I mean, it takes a full day to go through all of these prophecies. <laughs> I've done it before, uh, more than once. Actually, I've gone through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation twice, looking at every single verse related to the kingdom of God. And uh, you can't just do it in a day. But uh, it, your mind almost grows numb with it because they're all unanimously, repetitively, painstakingly saying the same thing over and over and over again. And that's just what I'm talking about here is just t- taking the prophets at face value about this earthly theocratic kingdom that is coming. And we looked at some of the characteristics of the kingdom last week, um, just defining this kingdom that's predicted. We see, number one, the righteous king rules from his world capital in Jerusalem. Uh, prophecies like Isaiah 2 say a Messiah is going to come and establish his throne in Jerusalem and all the nations are going to make pilgrimages to him. They're going to come to him and learn from him. Jerusalem is going to be physically and spiritually elevated. Uh, Zechariah 14 is a great chapter to read about that as well. Uh, Global peace between nations. We see that's another characteristic. Miss America's wish is finally going to come true. All the nations are going to be at peace. World peace. And it's not going to come through the United Nations. Only Christ can bring that. Uh, Jerusalem is going to dwell securely, and they'll never be uprooted from their land again, it says. Uh, The third characteristic is that the animal kingdom is restored to peace. We talked about this. Creation is set free from its futility, in the words of Paul. Uh, creation's longing to be set free from the curse and, and Isaiah. And others declare things like the wolf and the lamb are going to lie down together. We usually see a picture of a lion and a lamb, but it's actually a wolf and a lamb. 
the bear is going to graze like the ox. And little children can play with vipers and not get hurt. They're going to play by the den of a cobra and not get hurt. Uh, the fourth characteristic is that humanity experiences unmatched health. The person, it says, who dies at the age of 100 is going to be considered cursed. Right now we think of that person as blessed. That's a long life. And this, uh, in the prophecies of Isaiah, that's young. That's actually being a curse. And it says no more infant deaths, mortality. And then it says there's, there's no more deaf, there's no more blind, there's no more mute, there's no more lame. Don't you guys wish you had your, uh, your eyesight back? Well, go get Lasix. No, I'm just kidding. Um, don't you wish you had your ears back? Huh? What? Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, that sort of thing, it's not going to be existent in this kingdom. Vegetation becomes incredibly productive as well. It's going to become friendly again. No more thorns and thistles to infest the ground or to spray every year. Uh, the sower overtaking the reaper. Prophecy from Joel. You see the desert blossoming. Ezekiel 47 talks about fishing in the Dead Sea. It's, it's dead today, but it talks about fishermen coming and casting nets in it then, in that day. So these are just a few characteristics of this coming kingdom that Jews were anticipating based on the Old Testament prophecies and taking them at face value. It's a kingdom where Israel's restored with spiritual and physical blessings, but it's not just for them. It's also for all nations. All nations. And we want to keep that don't miss this. We want to keep that Old Testament description of the kingdom in mind as we come to the New Testament and see the king and the kingdom presented. We're going to trace the progress of this kingdom thought mainly through the book of Matthew today because Matthew focuses on the kingdom and it's written for a Jewish audience answering the question if it Answering the question, if Jesus is the Messiah, then where is this kingdom that the Old Testament prophets wrote about? If Jesus is the Messiah, where's the kingdom? And so that's what we're going to look at. Uh, number one in our outline, we see the king and the kingdom presented in Matthew verses 1 through 10. Um, as you open up the New Testament to the first century, uh, you need to note that messianic expectation is at a fever pitch. Everyone's expecting the Messiah to come any day now. And everyone's reading the prophet Daniel, and they're, they're seeing, okay, right? They're looking at the Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the four and a half kingdoms, and uh, they're saying, okay, so you've got Babylon has come, the head, and they're gone. Greek Persia has come, uh, the, the, the chest and the arms, now that's gone. Greece has come, the waist, now that's gone. The last one is, is Rome. The, the legs and the feet mixed with clay. And so they're thinking the Messiah's got to come any day because after that there's a Messiah who comes and establishes his kingdom, right? And destroys the statue. And Jesus did come. He actually bursts onto the scene with angelic proclamation and witness. In Matthew chapter 1 you see the genealogy of Matthew describing him as the son of David, in other words, he's the Messiah, he's qualified to be the king because he is the son of David, as one of David's descendants has to, is going to be the Messiah. And when Jesus grows up, he and John are preaching what is called the gospel of the kingdom. And they're saying, repent, because the kingdom of God or of heaven is at hand. And what they mean by that is never clearly defined in the New Testament. Which means, where should we look for the definition of what they were thinking, what they were expecting. We should probably look to the Old Testament. It should be assumed from the Old Testament. Alva J. McLean, in his work, The Greatness of the Kingdom, said, the absence of any formal definition of the kingdom in its initial announcement indicates that the Jewish hearers were expected to know exactly what kingdom was meant. So what kingdom do you think they were expecting? That earthly theocratic kingdom in the Old Testament. That's what they were all waiting for. I have no doubt in my mind. And when the Jews heard that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, based on the Old Testament, talking about a heavenly kingdom coming to earth, 
And based on the messianic fervor of the first century, you have zealots trying to defeat Rome and sort of usher in the kingdom themselves by right, defeating Rome. I think we can assume that they had in mind that theocratic geopolitical kingdom of Israel from the Old Testament, where the Messiah comes and rules and reigns. And sometimes you hear people say, you know, those silly, silly Jews, they were, they were looking for a physical political kingdom. And I want to say, well, of course they were, because that's what the Old Testament predicted. That's what the Old Testament talked about. That was their hope, and it's our hope as well. I don't know about you, but I don't just want to, ent- when I die, enter into some spiritual state. I'm not saying I won't. I'm saying our ultimate hope is not just to see the spiritual things restored, not to just to be spiritually reconciled to God. We want to see all of creation reconciled with God, spiritually and physically. And that was their hope too. And when we read our Bibles, I think what we often do is we, we jump right into the New Testament. right? We disregard the Old Testament. That's hard stuff. And we jump into the New Testament, and we don't consider the Old Testament definition of the kingdom. I think that's where most people go awry in this area. We come at it with maybe a Gnostic idea that physical is bad, spiritual is good, right? Physical bad, spiritual good. And so we think, well, only a good kingdom, you know, God's kingdom is going to be only spiritual. Not based on the Old Testament prophets. But, and then you have the Platonic uh, spiritual vision model. This even like is an American culture of Christianity. We have this idea that we're just going to die and we're going to go to a spiritual place and we're going to sit on clouds forever and we're just going to stare into the glory of God and be content there. And we're all going to play harps, right? I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of heaven that, that I really want to go to forever. <laughs> That'd be pretty disappointing. Not that being in God's presence ain't enough, but I'm saying our hope and the thing that's in us is there's something wrong with this world. We want this world to be restored, don't we? Uh, more, so it's more than just a spiritual thing. But I think as Christians, um, when we, we come to the New Testament, we usually come thinking of God's kingdom as his universal kingdom. And what I mean by that is uh, there, there's two aspects of the kingdom that are described in Scripture that, if you don't understand, are going to create a lot of confusion. So when you think about God's universal kingdom, Daniel chapter uh, 4, for example, and we're talking about his universal reign. Unchallenged, eternal reign. God always reigns over all, and he never does not reign. Right? It's his eternal rule over all of creation, unceasing, unchallenged. But then there's the Jewish perspective and expectation of the mediatorial kingdom, which I tend to see starts in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. It's God ruling on earth through a man, through an Adam, or image bearers, or Christ, the Christ man, right? The God man who acts as God's representative on earth. And uh, ultimately, that's going to be Jesus, who is the last Adam, who takes back the kingdom of the world from Satan, and he rules and subdues the earth with his saints. And, but the prophet Daniel clearly speaks of both of these kingdom aspects. You've got God's kingdom that reigns over all, even over Nebuchadnezzar, who, who was the king of the world at the time. He's the most powerful world ruler. But then you've got this other kingdom that is given to a son, the son of man in Daniel chapter 7, the Messiah, who comes on the clouds and establishes his reign on the earth. So you've got God ruling over all, but then you've got an earthly theocratic kingdom reign. And I think you want to keep that in mind when you're reading the Gospels. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to honor, number one, all of the Old Testament revelation completely. And it will help you understand how uh, everything the prophets predicted will come to fruition. Not just through Christ's first coming, but through a first and second coming. So, basically the New Testament doesn't redefine and reinterpret all that Old Testament stuff. No, you still see the expectation in the New Testament. It just... Uh, was postponed in an essence. So the, the New Testament actually builds on the Old Testament in continuity and complete fulfillment. It doesn't have to redefine, it doesn't have to reinterpret it. 
if that makes sense. But when Jesus preaches that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, I think it means that the kingdom they were expecting was imminent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's imminent. It's on the verge of arrival, but it hasn't actually arrived yet. It was being offered. It was being offered to Israel. For the kingdom of Israel to be restored like they've been wanting, Israel needed to repent and receive Christ as their Messiah. Just as the Old Testament said, they needed to prepare spiritually for it. To enter that kingdom, to, to have that kingdom come. And, and uh, they needed to quit trusting in their physical ethnicity, right? Just thinking that, well, because I'm a Jew, then I'm okay with God. I'm right with God and I can get into the kingdom. And they needed to quit trusting their circumcision and their keeping of the works of the laws. And they needed to embrace Christ. And uh, I don't know if you've thought about this much, but I don't think that the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus and John and the disciples of Jesus were preaching at the beginning of his ministry is exactly the same gospel of grace that we preach. And that sounds strange at first, but think about it. They weren't preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because it hadn't happened yet. And when Jesus started to speak of his death, all the disciples went, uh, I don't think so, right? They weren't having it. By no means, Lord. You're not going to die. Don't, don't do that. And, and so they couldn't have been preaching that beforehand. Uh, so they would try to stop him from talking like that. They would have none of it. Uh, James Fazio, he has a wonderful book on... Uh, on this subject called the two commissions. You see two missionary mandates in Matthew's gospel where uh, he, he goes into detail on the differences between two commissions in Matthew's gospel. You've got Matthew 10 where Jesus sends out the disciples, the 12 and the 70, to all of Israel, right? And then you've got the Matthew 28 great commission that we see, go and make disciples. But the most significant difference that Fazio lays out between these two commissions is the audience. It's the audience. In the first mandate, Jesus and his disciples are commanded, or sorry, Jesus commands the disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom to Israel only. He says, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And uh, I think that's more than a courtesy call. I think Jesus was offering the kingdom of God if they would repent and believe. I believe that based on the Old Testament, based on the first century context, the cause and effect conversation between Jesus and the Jews in the Gospels and the response of John the Baptist while he's sitting in jail. There's a number of reasons for it. But Michael Vlock writes this. He says, on multiple occasions, the Old Testament prophets declared that national repentance on Israel's part would bring the kingdom blessings and reinstatement to the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Passages such as Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 3, 2 Chronicles 7 reveal this. The declaration, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, shows that Israel's Messiah was now in Israel's midst. Remember that phrase? The kingdom of God is among you. It's in your midst. And the kingdom was on the brink. But repentance would be necessary for Israel to inherit this kingdom. And so what the Old Testament prophets predicted was now an imminent reality and a choice for Israel. And he says, what will they choose? What are they going to choose? And that's the question. They had all the evidence they needed to make the right decision. Jesus uh, being the Messiah who could usher in this perfectly spiritual and perfectly physical kingdom on earth was evidenced or authenticated by his powers, by his curse-reversing Powers, you see the curse-reversing power of healing in Matthew 9.35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So, for a time in Israel, crippling diseases were virtually non-existent. Imagine that. Crippling diseases being virtually non-existent in Israel during his ministry. Miraculous healings gave Israel tangible 
visible glimpses and previews of the Messiah's kingdom where humanity experiences that unmatched health that we talked about. No lame, no blind, no deaf, no mute. Jesus was going around healing all of those things. He even demonstrated his power to raise the dead. I believe that's what, this is what Hebrews 6, 5 means when it says that the Jews who rejected Christ tasted, remember this, the powers of the age to come. They tasted the powers of the age to come, but then it also says, because they rejected that evidence, they didn't believe in Christ as Messiah, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. And we'll look at what that means in a little bit even more. But Jesus, secondly, demonstrates his curse-reversing power over creation. In Matthew 8, 23-27, Jesus and his disciples, they're out on the open water on the Sea of Galilee. A great storm comes up, and they fear for their lives. And what's Jesus doing? He's snoozing, taking a nap. And they say, Master, do something. And he gets up, and he's, he says, You men of little faith... <laughs> and then he and then he then he rebukes the wind, rebukes the storm, and it all stops. And it becomes calm again. And they're amazed and they say, What kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Answer the God man, the Messiah. This is the one. This is the one who can reverse the curse on creation. And then you see his curse-reversing power over the kingdom of Satan. You know, ever since Genesis chapter 3, the kingdom of the world has been the kingdom of Satan. It's been the kingdom of darkness. He usurped authority from Adam, we read. Satan today, in this present age in which we're living in, is called the ruler of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the god of this age. Lower G. John said the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And in the, in the temptation account of Matthew 4, Satan even offered, remember this, the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, well, it's not in your power to do that. No, he understood Satan definitely had a control on this world. However, during Jesus' ministry, he and his disciples started to cast demons out of people. And these exorcisms demonstrated his power over the kingdom of Satan. You never see a demon cast out a Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. You never see, the, you never see it the other way around. It's light casting out darkness. It's demonstrating his ability, remember this, Mark 3, to bind the strong man, the one who has control on the world, to reverse Satan's rule and control. He's the only one who can do it. And what does Revelation 20 say about this age to come? Satan's going to be bound. This is what Isaiah 27 hints at as well. Satan's going to be bound. And this is why Satan opposes God's plan to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, you see it in this first coming when Herod, Revelation 12, I think it is, pulls back the curtain on that, this event. Satan is out to kill baby Jesus through Herod. He wants to take out the Messiah. At the second coming, what do we see? Heavenly armies. Or not heavenly armies. Well, we see the heavenly army coming against earthly armies influenced by Satan. Armies that have mustered against Israel and Jerusalem and the Jewish people and against Christ. And they want to stop it. And so this is why I think the day of the Lord is called the day of the Lord. Because Satan has had his day. He's had his day since Genesis chapter 3, but the day of the Lord is saying the Lord is going to have his day as well. And he's going to come and he's going to vanquish the squatters from his earth. And he's going to establish his rule and his reign. He's going to take it back completely. And no longer will Satan influence the nations. But all of these miracles and all of this teaching 
that Jesus did were tangible proofs that the king was here, the kingdom of God was on the brink. And all of Israel is aware of this by Matthew chapter 10. All of Israel has heard the gospel of the kingdom and that they need to repent. Because this is, uh, they all witnessed the message, they all witnessed the, the power, but how do they respond? And when you get to Matthew 11 and 12, you see their response. You see the king and the kingdom rejected. Jesus begins to denounce and condemn the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These are all cities on the north side of Galilee where Jesus called his home. Capernaum. These are the cities who who witnessed more than anyone else Jesus' power and Jesus' teaching. And they didn't believe. So he denounces them. They didn't let the evidence speak for itself. Even Nazareth, his hometown, rejected him in Matthew 13. He goes home, they reject him. In Matthew 12, Jesus heals some men on the Sabbath. And people ask, this could not be the son of David, could it? Translation, is this the Messiah? And the response of the religious leaders is, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. They said he he was satanic, essentially. His power is demonic. And this is a major turning point right here. This is where everything changes. Bach writes, the gravity of the response must be grasped. The Messiah of Israel was in their midst performing great miracles. But instead of believing in him, the religious leaders who represented Israel accused him of teeming with Satan. And so the leaders of Israel crossed a line of no return. The tragic event has devastating consequences, not only for them, but for the nation of Israel. What was occurring was both individual and national sin. The consequences will be both individual and national. And after this encounter with the religious leaders, the die is cast. The cities and leaders of Israel will not believe. And from this point onward, the kingdom will not be presented as at hand or near anymore. From that point on, when they say, this is not the son of David, this is satanic, things change. Jesus says they've committed the unpardonable sin. Again, this is something I think that was a national thing. It's not possible. Well, it was only possible while Jesus was on earth offering Israel the kingdom. And it was a sin committed by the generation of Jews in Jesus' day. But uh, you notice what he said there. The gospel of the kingdom just isn't mentioned anymore. Jesus starts to speak in parables to conceal truth. Now, parables can be helpful for understanding truth if you know what the parable means. But his intention in the parables was to conceal truth from the religious leaders and from Israel. Uh, John the Baptist dies. Jesus starts to reach out to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Mercy is extended to a Canaanite woman after this. He brings up the cross. He brings up the church for the first time. And so we start to see what it means that there would be a suffering Messiah that the Old Testament talked about. We see Daniel 9's prophecy clearly now when it says that the Messiah would come, but he would be cut off and have nothing. The Messiah came, but he was rejected. The kingdom is officially postponed in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. What I mean by that is it was no surprise. But then you see... Again, the kingdom and the king and the kingdom postponed. Jesus, uh, he begins to speak of the kingdom as something that's future now. It's no longer at hand. It's something in the future. He speaks of an inter-advent age that we're living in called the church age, uh, commonly. This is an age where you're now, instead of Satan being cast out, you're going to have sons of the kingdom, believers in, in the case of the parable there in Matthew 13, sons of the kingdom who are going to exist alongside sons of the evil one. So in other words, the evil one's not necessarily going to go away until, what do you see, until the kingdom comes to separate them. And, uh, and that's when God deals with the evil. 
And uh, I think the parable of the nobleman is one of the most helpful parables given to, to show what happened here. Uh, that the kingdom of God was not going to appear immediately. You see this in Luke 19. You can turn there. I have it on the screen. I trust you also have the notes this morning. But it says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then returned. And he called ten of his slaves and gave to them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We don't want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, whom he had given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And so the the parable goes on to speak of how the nobleman rewards his faithful servants, who were faithful while he was gone. But then uh, he executes those who do not want him to reign over him, do not want him to reign over them at his return. And Jesus gives this uh, parable to tell people that the kingdom's not on the brink anymore. It's been postponed. Uh, they, it's not going to appear immediately. And so, like the nobleman, he's now going to have to go away for a while. And uh, back then, a ruler, using his illustration, would, would have to travel to Rome to receive their right to rule. And uh, they couldn't fly, so the journey would take a long time. And while they were gone, they would put servants in charge, and those servants would be rewarded when the ruler returned to establish their reign. For example, Archelaus goes to Rome, to receive a kingdom from Caesar, travels all the way to Rome. But his reign didn't actually begin until he returned to Judea. And upon returning, his, he rewarded his servants and punished his enemies. And so, in the same way, Jesus is saying he must now return to heaven to receive his authority. Matthew 28, Daniel chapter 7. He's presented before the Ancient of Days and given authority in a kingdom. And then the kingdom comes. And so he comes back. But we, his representatives or his ambassadors of the kingdom, are to be faithful until he returns. And then we will rule and reign with him. Service in his kingdom is part of the reward. I... Love this parable from him. It's one that's worth getting to know really well. Tons of theology packed into this message, I know. But we want to be prepared for his return by seeing, by honestly putting our faith in Christ. We want to be ready for his return by being ready. We want to have our faith in Christ. We want to be busy about his kingdom business while he's gone. We're the ambassadors, which means we're not necessarily in the kingdom. We're in a foreign country as the ambassadors of it. So we want to see people restored to that kingdom, to come to know him as well. And then we want to be faithful stewards with the things that he's given us. And then we'll be rewarded when that comes. See, we're over and over in the New Testament, we're called inheritors of the kingdom. We're going to inherit the kingdom. It's a future tense thing. But this is how the kingdom, though postponed, is still applicable to us today. Um, that the kingdom was postponed is evident by the question of the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. A lot of people say, well, the kingdom was established in Matthew early on, you know, when they're preaching it. If that's the case, and that's what they were preaching, he's, why would the disciples ask in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It hadn't been established yet. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, you guys, you guys are just so unspiritual, and you're, you know, you're so wrong-headed. Someday you'll get it. He just says it's not for you to know the timing of it. It's not for you to know the times or the epochs. 
the days, the seasons of it. So um, it's also evident in Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 3. He addre- he's addressing the men of Israel in Jerusalem. And he says, men of Israel, here's what you need to do. He says, you need to repent and return so that your sins would be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So the expectation, even after they receive the Spirit of God, is still there, and it's hinging upon Israel's repentance. And then the kingdom postponement is also clearly evidenced by the way that Satan is not bound today as he will be during the millennium. Uh, He is on the loose. We do spiritual warfare. Evil still exists. Uh, Yes, Jesus did win a major battle in his first coming against Satan, but it's just one battle in the war. Satan still is active today. But this postponement was unexpected. You know, the Old Testament talked about a victorious Messiah, and it talked about a suffering Messiah, and it was really confusing for the Jews uh, because none of this had happened yet. And uh, you come to find out that... um, Actually, Christ is going to fulfill both of these through his first and second coming. At the, back in the day, actually, they thought, oh, there's going to be two messiahs. There's going to be one that suffers and one that conquers. Well, it turns out they just missed the first and second coming, actually. But uh, that's clear now, right? It's going to be fulfilled through the two comings of Christ. And, and so this is how Jesus is king, and yet the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness yet. And this is why Psalm 110, verse 1, becomes the most quoted verse in the New Testament, he's explaining how Jesus is the king and the kingdom isn't here. Because he's going to go sit at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Huge verse in the New Testament. So he sits at the Father's right hand until the appointed time, and then at that time he'll come. But Matthew 23, <clears throat> uh, Jesus denounces the re- religious leaders of Israel using what scholars call an intergenerational you, or a transgenerational you. When God addresses Israel as a corporate entity, identity, he simply uses the word you. Do you remember this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 30. He used you over and over again to refer to national Israel. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Right? Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country, and, and even though he's using the word you there to refer, he's speaking to one generation of Israel, it's also a term that goes beyond that generation. The generation that enters into the land during the conquest that heard that is the you. You're going to be blessed in the city and in the country. But who experiences the cursing? Several generations later, still you. So when he's talking to them, he's talking to them. When he uses this intergenerational you, he's talking to Israel, no matter what generation it is. God can speak with national Israel this way because of his covenant with them. He says, if you, Israel, obey, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to be scattered. It doesn't matter which generation of Israel it is. Well, in Matthew 23 that we're going to look at, he uses this intergenerational you again in reference to Israel. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who, sent, who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me again until you, Israel, say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Actually, just a little earlier in that passage, he gives them oh, he, a curse. He blames them for the death of Zechariah, that generation of Israel. You killed between, what is it, the temple and the altar. Well, was it that generation? No, but it was still Israel. So he's identifying them as the you there, if that makes sense. 
And uh, the term gather reminds us, I think, of the prophets, the idea of being gathered, being restored. He wanted that to happen. However, see some free will here, don't we? You were unwilling. You were unwilling. In Luke 19, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he weeps over it. He says, this day could have made for peace. This is the day. He's riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. Instead, Jerusalem, you're going to be destroyed. But it's not like it's completely over, is it? Notice that word, until. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In, in other words, I understand that to mean until they come to Christ and recognize Christ as the Messiah. And I say that again, based on face value, Old Testament prophecy, plainly stated, Zechariah 12 through 14, Romans eleven twenty six, quoting Isaiah. There is a generation of Israelites who, after going through the fiery tribulation, are going to call out to Christ. They're going to weep over him. And they're going to Weep over the one whom they have pierced, and it says he will save them through this time. And it's that time, that terrible kindness of the tribulation, that's going to drive them to Christ. It's a time of intense anti-Semitism, attempted extermination, but it's a time where they finally are brought to faith. And uh, it's during that tribulation period Matthew chapter 24, all of it discourse, talking about the end times where he says the gospel of the kingdom is again preached because the kingdom is at hand again. Revelation eleven fifteen says this, deep into the tribulation period, it says this, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. So after pouring out all of his judgments, he's taking the world back. That's when I think it happens. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will, then he will sit on his throne. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom of God prepared for you since the foundation of of the world. So, what a glorious invitation that will be, huh? Enter into the kingdom now. <laughs> what a glorious invitation that's going to be. Until then, though, Jesus says, your house, Israel, your temple is going to be left to you desolate. And we know he's talking about the temple there because in the next couple of verses, Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left upon another which will not be torn down. He also says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And then those who are in Judea must flee. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led captive into all the nations. Worldwide dispersion. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus prophesied the destruction that would come to Jerusalem and uh, to the temple, which occurred in AD 70. So he's prophesying this, is, this event approximately 40 years in advance before it ever happens. And then as a result, and it happens as a result of the zealots, a Jewish sect of insurrectionists, who revolt in the year AD 66 through 73, and the city and the temple are destroyed completely again, this time by the Romans and not the Babylonians. <clears throat> and uh, so Jerusalem's desolated again, Israel is dispersed for rejecting the Messiah. And you see this actually memorialized, this event memorialized on the Arch of Titus in Rome outside of the Colosseum. There's a picture of the artwork up there, the engraving. We see the, even the, the, the menorah out of the temple being carried into Rome itself. So it's being carted off to Rome. And uh, it's also evidenced today by the massive stones, Herodian Ashlers, that lay at the base of the temple mount today. You can go there today, put your hand on these massive stones that were put.
pushed off the Temple Mount. When the Romans destroyed the temple, they burned it with fire. All that gold, they said, melted down in between the stones. And then they started throwing stones off the Temple Mount to get to the gold. And so every stone was torn down, just like Jesus said. And then, so Jews were scattered then, and they were scattered even more in A.D. 132 through 135. Uh, that would be about 60 years later in another revolt called the Bar Kokhba Revolt, which uh, is, was in response to Emperor Hadrian trying to paganize Jerusalem and renaming it and all of that. But that's where we're going to stop for today on the story of the land and the people Lord willing, we'll pick up the story next time and trace the story of the Jews from AD 70 to today. We'll look more at Israel in the present. But I want to leave us with a practical application. And that is that we need to be faithful as we wait for our nobleman to return. Because he's going to return and he's going to establish his kingdom and we need to be ready for it. That means if you have not placed your trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, you need to do that now. You need to do that today. I'd invite you to do that today. Call out to him in your heart. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you. I know Jesus died for my sins. And I'm going to trust in him and him alone to be my Savior and help me to walk with you, Lord. And then secondly, be faithful with the gospel, be faithful with the resources he's given you. There's a couple of verses that that grip my heart continually that keep me in service to him, to be quite honest with you, that keep me in the battle for truth, that keep me in the battle for souls. And it's Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I have also received authority from my Father. So Jesus says, you're going to rule and reign with me. He says, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. So apparently, Jesus' throne, Lord have mercy on me, is like a John Deere with a little buddy seat beside you. You know, and you can go join him on his throne. And what an amazing thing to even contemplate. These things are going to happen. And we want to do our best now to serve him faithfully, joyfully, humbly in all humility and then we'll be rewarded for sure.